Hello there, and welcome to a new sound for the Jewish views. With me, Phil Dave, Clive Rosden, Kate Fulton, and Diana Toman. And on this very special first New Look edition, we will be bringing you some of the action from this year's Jewish Book Week. And at the Jewish Book Week, we hope to be speaking to some of the many authors that will be there and the people that read the books and everything to do with Jewish books. It should be fascinating. It should do indeed. But before that, we have the news from Vivian Krieger. And we begin with Prince William, who is to make the first ever official royal visit to Israel, which will be in the summer. The second in line to the throne will also go to Jordan and the Palestinian territories. Senior royals have previously been to Israel, but never officially. The Board of Deputies said the UK and Israel are key allies with a strong trading relationship, and the visit will bring the two countries even closer together. The chief executive of the Football Association has apologised for naming the Star of David as an example of a religious or divisive symbol that should not be allowed in the game. Martin Glenn had put it in the same category as the swastika, as he discussed the wearing of a yellow ribbon by the Manchester City manager Pep Guardiola in support of imprisoned politicians in Catalonia. The Jewish Leadership Council said Mr Glenn's comments had been seriously offensive, which then led to the apology. Jewish and Muslim women marched through central London to mark 100 years of female suffrage, calling for greater equality a century after they finally got the vote. They walked under the Nisa Nashim banner, which is the Muslim Jewish Women's Network. One of the co-founders, Julie Siddiqui, said it was great to see representation from diverse backgrounds. It's so important that all voices are heard. Barbara Streisand has angered some animal rights activists after cloning her beloved dog, which died last year. Two of the three puppies she now has are clones. Miss Streisand said they have different personalities, though. Those against her move say there are millions of adoptable dogs languishing in animal shelters. And in sport, the head of Iran's Wrestling Federation has resigned over its refusal to fight Israeli athletes. Razul Kadem, who's a former Olympic gold medal winner and two-time world champion, reportedly said he was forced from his position because he opposed the Islamic Republic's hardline stance towards Israeli opponents. Iran doesn't recognise the state of Israel. And that's the news for this week. Vivian, thank you very much indeed. Well, let's begin, shall we, with a look at your copy of the Jewish News for this week. And joining us to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and features editor Fran Wolfish. We start off with the front page and the headline that reads, Corbyn named in online hate group investigation. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing new in the fact that the online area is a cesspit of of hatred if you go into the dark and deep corners. Well, David Collier, who's an extraordinary individual and somebody who's actually come out of the shadows, he's done a lot of amazing, anonymous, kind of below-the-surface work. Well, he's come out with this remarkable nearly 300-page report that he published on his own website in which he outlines an extraordinary private group called Palestine Live, over 3,000 members, all spouting the usual anti-Semitic nonsense. You know, the, the Jews killed everyone in the Twin Towers in 9-11. They faked the moon landings. They fixed Big Brother. They shot John Lennon. All that nonsense. And usually all the ne'er-do-wells, all the fish ride bike thinkers, that's not really a problem if you've got those collecting in those areas. But this was a group, would you believe, that one Jeremy Corbyn was a member of even at the time he became Labour Party leader in 2015. He is no longer, and it's important to stress this, a member, and there's no suggestion that he endorses any or all of the views contained within, but you're talking about David Ward, who I know you've uh, infamously uh, interviewed and quizzed on this programme before, Jenny Tong, Chris Williamson, another Labour Party MP, Paul Mason, the BBC reporter, or former BBC reporter, also a member. These are people who are tagged in this Palestine live group who uh, whose names are circulating within it it's both shocking and entirely unremarkable that Jeremy Corbyn should be associated with these people you also talk about it in the paper about John Landsman becoming very important within as chairman of the Labour Party and he is a Jew well, he is. I mean, he's standing for General Secretary. Mike Nichols stepped down a couple of weeks ago. Not a popular man from the left of the party. John Landsman is stepping up with a few other potential people to take over that position. It's a very administrational position. I think the role, no expert on the requirements of the job, but it's basically conference organising, things like that. So whether John Landsman takes that position, I'm not sure. But in, in terms of what his leader put in front of, in terms of this story in this week's paper, 
paper, I think, yeah, a lot of our listeners, a lot of our readers won't be shocked, won't be surprised, will be equally as sickened as they as they have been in the past and sure will be again when this sort of stuff surfaces a second, third and fourth time. I think the story also highlights, actually, the problem of these groups still parading around on Facebook. Social media is a wonderful thing, but it's very clear that there are still these left-wing conspiracy theory anti-Semitic groups hanging about in there, regardless of whether Mr. Corbyn was a member or not, or ceases to be a member. Why he was a member, that's another question altogether. The fact that the group even exists should be something that's looked at as well. I don't really mind that there are these Looney Tunes groups on Facebook and social media. The question is, is the potential next Prime Minister of this country the sort of person that should be sharing online space with individuals who believe this guff? And quite clearly not. What I found very surprising in this week's edition is that on the front page we've got a picture of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and she's saying, Bibi, isn't that what we're having, darling? What's yeah, that about? We've gone a bit private eye and I'd, I'd rather <laughs> I'd rather chip in on this one and before Francine comes along and says that uh, she didn't... We say a, we. Say a, we a, a particularly um, <laughs> amusing caption. So basically, as we know, Prince William, after 70 years, first official royal visit to Israel, we're very excited. We'll be waving the bunting, blue, blue and white in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv come this summer as the royals hit Israel. So we've got a big picture of Kate, who's not going to be going because obviously she's pregnant with their third child talking to her husband and because they're posh of course they don't say baby they say bibi <laughs> oh so i see oh right oh, so they, 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 do, they do say a joke worth explaining and all that i think <laughs> i think it's entirely self-evident so the caption is bibi as in benjamin Netanyahu. isn't that what we're having darling well it's very exciting that of course that they are going to make an official visit to israel and i dare say once they do make that that we will talk about it in great detail but let's try and cram another couple of stories in page 10 of this week's paper fa boss Sorry for Star of David Slur. Innocent ignorance, I think, is probably the, the best way of describing Martin Glenn, the Football Association boss, who said that all symbols, contentious or, or otherwise, should be banned from football matches. And he used the example of symbols like the swastika and the Star of David. He lumped the two together. This was started when Pep Guardiola, the Manchester City boss, wore something on his lapel at a match in support of Catalonian independence. So I think that's what started the whole thing. It's very, very upsetting that he should lump the two. I think ignorant, innocent, I don't think there was anything malicious in it. And to his very great credit, he apologised almost the following day. Absolutely. It's important to say that he actually officially apologised to Simon Johnson of the Jewish Leadership Council, who has graciously accepted his apology on behalf of the community, which I believe that we could all agree on is the right attitude. There is no point in getting a bee in one's bonnet about something that was blatantly a mistake. Okay, it's... Not a very pleasant mistake, but mistakes happen, nobody is perfect. It's a classic case of foot-in-mouth syndrome, and clearly with football, feet should be kept on the ground. So hopefully he's learnt from this. I mean, obviously it's shocking to put religious symbols in the same category as swastikas and and the symbol of Robert Mugabe. But I think at the end of the day, as you said, he has apologised. And wrap on the knuckles, let's move on, I think. And there's another very interesting article in today's Jewish News, and that is Rabbi Lord Sachs receiving his Lifetime Achievement Award from Tony Blair, Jewish News Night of Heroes, last month. That's because you're celebrating his 70th birthday. This week, in fact, uh, Thursday just gone. Would you believe it? He has turned big 7-0. Now, I could have sworn Lord Sachs was was not a day older than 39, but it turns out he's turned 70, and we have looked back, journalists at the Jewish News, the news editor, Justin Cohen, sat down in his lovely abode with a cup of tea for an hour and reflected on seven extraordinary decades of one of the leading lights of our community and how extraordinarily he's still on the cusp of creativity, innovation. He, he, he did a TED Talk, which is a big online lecture, very popular. 1.5 million people have seen that. Uh, He's talking all about uh, how the the Jewish community has changed in his time, not only in the 22 years he was chief rabbi, but in the years since, and the great job Rabbi Mervis is doing. Fascinating, double-page spread interview. Uh, It's a wonderful tribute to a wonderful man. I find it quite extraordinary that based on that Ephraim Mervis is obviously the current chief rabbi, it does seem a little bit bizarre how almost Jonathan Sachs is always there in the background somehow. He always comes back to the surface and we always refer to him, as it were, of former chief rabbi. And somehow 
his position has never really gone away, even though he obviously hasn't been chief rabbi for quite a number of years now. Well, I think that just shows the the love and the respect that people still hold for him, even though he's not in office anymore. And what's interesting as well is that he, despite turning 70, which is young today in in today's terms, he is continuing on. He is working. He's not going to put his feet up at any time soon. He says he's actually working on his Humash, which is the biggest project he's ever undertaken. So I think we can only see more and more from Rabbi Lord Sachs. Excellent. He's, he's, yeah, I think it's fair to say he's one of Anglo Jewry's greatest ever exports. He's much loved around the world. World leaders, of course, a couple of months ago, he penned or helped pen Mike Pence, the vice president of America's speech on Jerusalem and, and moving of the embassy. So I think every world leader from the Pope to presidents and prime ministers look upon him as, as a great mind and, and a great man. Okay, well, thank you both very much indeed. That's all we've got time for for a look at the paper for this week. But please do remember to pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. Well, you are listening to The Jewish Views, a new look for the programme. And in celebration of that, I think, Clive, it's time that by the wonders of radio, you and I go and join Kate and Diana now at Jewish Book Week, shall we? Very good idea. Let's go. And there you are, as if by some miracle. Here we are, joined by Kate and Diana. We just jumped over, didn't we? We did indeed. Well, Kate and Diana, hello. Hello. (laughs) Welcome to your (laughs) programme. Thank you, Phil. Well, seeing as that we were obviously just at our studios before you see, and now we've come to join you at King's Place. Anyone who wondered where you were at the start of this programme, that We've been milling around, absolutely. It's gorgeous here. It's so interesting. It's buzzy. It's happening. There is this thing where you sort of have to make sure you know which escalator you're going down to make sure you don't sort of end up on the wrong level. Once you've mastered that, the world is your oyster. The escalators are very peculiar here. Suddenly they so you jump on them and you don't actually realise until you're on them that you're going down two flights. That's right. But anyway, it doesn't that, matter. That, it is one of the most amazing buildings I've ever been into. <laughs> it really is. It's quite extraordinary. Well, let's find out, shall we, why exactly this place was chosen. Not that I don't think that we know. And let's speak to production manager Sarah Fairburn, who joins us now on The Jewish Views. Sarah, welcome to The Jewish Views. I have to ask Sarah a question first before we talk about Jewish Book Week. And that is, how did you come by the name of Fairburn? Ah, it's a very good question, actually. My parents are both Scottish. They're both from Edinburgh. And Fairburn is one of the oldest Scottish clans. Actually, the clan name is now Armstrong because of some probably apocryphal story about somebody saving the king from battle by lifting him onto his horse. But Fairburn, that is, it means pale child or beautiful child, depending on how kind you're being. Oh, well, you certainly live by, live to your name. Well, that's oh, very kind. So full of very kind. Yeah. Anyway, right. I have to warn you, the rest of this interview might not be as flattering. But even so, I suppose the one thing that we have to ask first and foremost Jewish Book Week is obviously upon us once more. And just give us a little flavour as to what goes into putting this, frankly, enormous production together, because there's a lot happening. Oh, gosh. Well, that is quite flattering, actually, although you might not think so. (laughs) It does take the entire year to programme and produce a festival like this, especially because there's actually a very small team that run it. There's kind of three to four people that work on it the year round. We probably start the festival planning, I would say, in May, going to the book fairs, going to visit publishers, reading a lot, reading everything that comes in, looking through all the catalogues and checking on everything. And that's where the year starts, really. How do you go about choosing what's going to be on? Do you look for Jewish authors or do people approach you? Has it got to be sort of Jewish publishers? How do, you, how do you decide and get the right sort of balance and mix? Oh, well, it's a bit of a mix and match situation, I think. People do, authors do come directly to us. They have either spoken at Jewish Book Week before or they've been to Jewish Book Week and they would really like to appear. We've got publishers that we've got really good relationships with and they come to us with titles that they think might interest us. Sometimes there's something that we just think would make an incredibly interesting conversation and we find a way to fit it within the conversational sphere of Jewish Book Week. We try to program things that are going to be new and interesting, that are going to be curated in a creative and new and interesting way but also to kind of bring to people the conversations that they want to hear and that they're really going to be keen to listen to at Jewish Book Week. So all the authors come to see you at the Book Week? At the Book Week they do, they do. They all probably get harassed by us a little bit 
for the festival with a kind of exact planning of what time they're going to arrive and how they're going to get here and which road they're going to take and where they're going to park and exactly who they're going to ask for and how their mics are going to fit. Yeah. You mentioned the word curator. Does that mean there is somebody who's got overall responsibility for curating or not? Oh, that's a good question. Without spinning the intricate working web of Jewish Book Week too much, I think the directors, the director Lucy Silver that we've had for the past three festivals, the director's obviously got the kind of overall view of the festival, the idea about which topics are going to be covered and which things are not necessarily going to be covered. But there's also the Jewish Book Council, which is the charity that runs Jewish Book Week. The council of trustees and the council members all have input and everybody in the office. And of course, you know, the way that the conversation in the media is going has an influence as well. How much would you say that the past Jewish Book Weeks influence how the current ones are shaped, if you see what I mean? Do you see what goes down quite well from the people who attend and then say, okay, that worked, that didn't, and then shape it accordingly? Or is it very much unchanged since it started? No, yes, absolutely. I think that there's a lot of influencing factors, including how the past Book Week went, which conversations were enthusiastically taken up and which ones maybe didn't quite hit the mark in terms of what people were expecting. And there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of other influencing factors, such as, you know, what, what's going on in the media right now. We want to appeal to the audience that we already have and also to new audiences and, you know, really try and open the conversation. And we try and program, you know, as broadly and widely as we can. And book sales must have an influence, mustn't they? I mean, the, the publishers have shrunk Am I right in thinking? Since it first opened, there used to be so many more publishers, and now there are two, perhaps, maybe three. I do often hear from customers this idea that the bookshop has shrunk dramatically in the past three years because it has moved space in the venue. But in fact, there's just as many titles in the bookshop as there were five years ago. In fact, there's more this year than there were five years ago, for sure. And although before I was, I've been at Jewish Book Week for five years, and I know that in the past it used to be more of a book fair, so lots of publishers would come and bring their own stock and bring their own authors and their own books to talk about. And now that's not the way we run it. It's more of a festival in terms of we program people and they bring, and their books are represented in the bookshop. And every year there are always numbers, are there, of uh, numbers of Jewish authors and, and publishers who, who provide the books. Uh, not just major publishers and Jewish authors and non-Jewish authors, you know, a vast, vast range of publishers from the UK and abroad. Some books come in from Canada. We have special print runs made from Canada, especially to, to supply the festival. But the books in the bookshop are representative of the speakers who are speaking at the festival. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating hearing about it. Thank you so much for giving us an insight into the way that this mammoth event all comes together. And of course, we didn't even scratch the surface of the fact that it's at King's Place and part, and then JW3 for another part, and there are loads of other little festivals going on. But it's fine. Hopefully, we'll find out more as we carry on through this program. But for now, Sarah Fairburn, thank you very much. Thanks so much. I don't know how she manages to control everybody, both speakers and all the hundreds and hundreds of Jews who are milling about in this building. Well, what strikes me is just the sheer volume of work that has to go into Jewish Book Week, that the number of people on the team versus, and the team is in the Jewish Book Week team, versus the number of people who come here, speak here, and then ultimately have to sort of arrange the production side of things, whether it be the actual sets that people are sitting in when the talks are going. It's mind-blowing how much work goes What is even it. more mind-blowing is that the number of books that are discussed and the number of authors there are and the number of publishers there are and it is un the whole thing is completely unbelievable and amazing and fascinating. Well, how about we find out about one of those books now, shall we? In particular, Trouble in the Tribe, the American-Jewish Conflict over Israel. Now, we are joined by Sarah Hirschhorn and Dov Waxman. So welcome to the Jewish Views, both of you. Thank I you. suppose that we've got to dive straight into this. This is a real subject of contention. Did you realize what you were undertaking when you started looking into this? Well, I did in the sense that that was the subject of the book, was to look at how Israel has become a source of contention in Jewish public life. But I probably didn't think I would also become the subject of that contention. I thought that I'd had the luxury of standing apart from it as an academic and analyzing this debate and, and commenting on it. And I didn't realize how anything you say, anything you write on this subject now can become the subject of polemic. So I was somewhat taken aback by 
the impossibility of having any kind of a conversation or any kind of analysis on the subject of Israel today without it degenerating into often angry debate and diatribes. What did you say that was so conflicting and causing so much anger, if you like? I'm still somewhat puzzled by that myself and trying to figure it out. I think the underlying message, if you like, that there is a shift taking place in how American Jews and in fact, more broadly, diaspora Jews in general relate to Israel away from what I would call unconditional support toward a more critical engagement. That idea that you can both be attached to Israel, that you can support Israel, but criticize the policies of its government, and that dissent is acceptable, that seems to be in certain circles still a provocative and controversial idea. Why did you feel the need to write about it? The long answer to that is, I think, personally, as a Jew myself who has a strong and close relationship to Israel, but is also somebody who uh, takes issue with Israeli government policies often, I was interested in really exploring that question and that relationship of how Jews outside of Israel engage with Israel and are sometimes profoundly ambivalent about its government's policies and kind of wrestle with their own relationship with Israel, and the question of loyalty. What kind of loyalty, if any, do diaspora Jews owe to Israel? I thought growing up as in Britain and then as an, becoming an American Jew, I felt personally very drawn to that issue. And, and I wanted to analyze it in the American Jewish context, particularly because I think American Jewry has some influence. I don't want to exaggerate the amount of influence it has upon Israel, but it has some voice inside Israel and some impact on the conflict itself. Are you saying then that American Jews are causing some of the troubles that are going on between Israel and the, and the Palestinians? Well, no, I, I think there is that claim, and, and there have been arguments most famously about a decade ago, there was a book written by a couple of political scientists called The Israel Lobby in US Foreign Policy, which essentially did make the argument that the pro-Israel lobby kind of pushes this very right-wing pro-Israel agenda, and that is one of the reasons why the Israeli-Palestinian conflict remains unresolved. And I actually came away with a different view, with with a belief that, in fact, American Jewish influence over the conflict is grossly exaggerated, and that American Jews don't have the influence that many ascribe to them. But But I think there is this belief, and therefore the views of American Jews do matter particularly when it comes to Israel. Sarah, I suspect there's going to be some people listening to this who are going to slightly struggle with what they're hearing because isn't the truth of it that there are enough people who aren't of the Jewish community who criticize Israel? Why should it fall on members within the community to start criticizing it as well? I'm not saying it's faultless, but, you know, there's enough people criticizing it. We don't need to do it ourselves, do we? Well, frankly, I think that, you know, the responsibility for criticism actually falls on those who are closest to the situation. I don't feel myself personally in the place to criticize the Palestinian community. I don't live amongst them. I don't speak their language. I don't share their religion. I'm not part of their national movement. But I am part of a Zionist community and a Jewish community. And therefore, I feel the obligation upon myself. And I would think that I would also see the responsibility of other American Jews and diaspora Jews who have ties to Israel. And certainly, the Israeli government claims a certain degree of ownership over the lives of diaspora Jews. So I would think that we also share in that burden. But the ownership, but I'm sorry, I'm confused. Surely it's down to diaspora Jews to decide whether or not that they would like to sort of stand by Israel, defend its actions and sort of stand proudly with it. I don't see sort of whether or not that it's, if, it's almost as if you're implying that Israel has got this inherent and almost automatic hold over diaspora Jews. And that's what sort of doesn't sit comfortably with me personally is I can't quite see that. Well, I don't think a Jew living outside of Israel has necessarily an obligation to speak out. I think, you know, Jews should be free to define their own relationship to Israel. But many are attached to Israel. Many do feel connected. Many do care about what's happening there. And many are disturbed or upset, worried about the direction in which they see the country heading. So it's not so much that I'm saying you must speak out, you must take a stand, but if you, but you shouldn't be silenced. You shouldn't feel necessarily intimidated if you do have an opinion that's contrary to the Israeli governments or contrary to the major organizations that claim to represent your community. Are you saying, Sarah, did I get you right? You're saying that the Israeli government needs to be changed. And if it can't be changed in Israel, then you need people like you to say it should be changed. 
Look, I think it's for the citizens of the state of Israel to decide who their leadership is. And those who vote in an Israeli election obviously get to, you know, decide the future of their polity. But I do think that when the Israeli government um, claims a certain degree of responsibility for diaspora Jewry, in turn, the diaspora Jews have a certain responsibility to be concerned about the character and the future of the state of Israel. Has there been an upsurge in settlers from the United States? You say that 60,000 have gone to live in Israel since 1967, I think it was. Is there any particular reason for that? Well, there are many reasons for that, and I would say that Americans have been present within the Israeli settler movement from the very beginning. In fact, from the summer of 1967, when Sandy Amichai, a uh, American from Los Angeles, California, came to join Kibbutz Kfar Etzion in the West Bank immediately after its founding, after the 1967 war. I think there are many reasons for it. Part of it is an understanding of the diaspora connection to Israel and a desire to be part of a pioneering project that American Jewry did not have an opportunity to participate in, neither in the United States nor in the founding of the State of Israel. There was also shared understandings of what the settler movement may be about in its most idealized form, the sense that they saw the settlements as a place for Jewish self-realization and a place where they could create their own utopian communities from scratch. Now, of course, this understanding of the settler project clashed with Palestinian sovereignty, and that's where the rubber meets the road. Regrettably, time is running against us. But what would you say in that case your ideal vision for the state of Israel is, just finally? Look, I, I define, describe myself as a liberal Zionist, and I would like to see a state of Israel that both honors the original understandings of a state of the Jews and Jewish self-determination, as well as strives for greater equality and inclusion for all of its citizens. And of? I think Sarah put it perfectly. I would agree with that, uh, that vision. Well, in that case, Sarah Hirschhorn and Dov Waxman, thank you very much for speaking to us. So much more we could have talked about, hey? I mean, when you think about the, how enormous the conflict is, it is quite a, quite a big subject. It's such to- a delicate subject as well. I mean, even just now, I've got to be honest, speaking to both Dov and Sarah just now actually made me almost feel a little bit uncomfortable mm. because I don't feel that as a Jew, it should be down to us as a community to actually start. So I'm not saying that anywhere is perfect. We can criticize quite happily the British government quite easily. And yet we're British. We're more British than we are Israeli. But yet, when it comes to Israel... I don't understand why there is always so much criticism of Israel. And yet nobody seems to say, but hang on, look how small Israel is. Sort of reframe that question. Let's look at Israel in the context of 21 Arab states all surrounding it and, and vowing in their constitutions to, to hit it and knock it into the sea. And yet we always manage to sort of look at, the, uh, at Israel. And, and anyway, I, I struggle they, with that. Don't, what they were saying, I think, maybe I'm wrong, but what, what they were saying, I think, there's got to be some sort of agreement about the two-nation state. And what they were saying is that nobody seems to be thinking about that. And the Jews and some Israelis, particularly American Israelis, if that makes sense, are not worrying about the fact that the Palestinians also deserve to have their bit of Palestine. Well, I I suspect that sort of in and amongst all of this, what is quite a typical reaction to, I think most people, you know, I don't think it's a case of whether or not you're Jewish or not. I believe that most people choose one or the other. They, They don't see the possibility of being able to side with both Israelis and Palestinians and therefore try and meet in the middle. It's normally choosing either siding with Israelis or siding with Palestinians. And I think that's why this is such a fractious and polarized subject and um, possibly why there is certainly in the near future doesn't appear to be any resolve. But there are many Israelis who actually agree with what those people have been saying and what what I thought I was saying as well. Yes, but I think a lot of people just having having given up on trying to take one side or the other tend to sit on the fence perhaps and get a little defensive about it. I thought I got slight feeling that there were both speakers were beginning to get a little defensive of their points well, of view. I was fascinated when Dov said that it wasn't any more his arguments that were being fought against. It was him. He was saying he was he was having to fight against personal polemic and debate. Well, that's... that's well, he is because we, he got some from, from us here. Yes, but he was saying there's been terrible debates online. People have been saying the most horrible things about him. 
Well, let us hope. But, that, hope not. <laughs> I mean, we. I hope not. I think that's absolutely appalling. Well, let us hope that none of the horrible mm. things are aimed at them or indeed us for reporting it. We are merely featuring <laughs> it on the program. Absolutely. But, Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> but I tell you one thing that we could do. Let's let's try and lighten it up a little bit because it's not all serious here. And obviously, Jewish Book Week, as the name would suggest, goes right across the entire week. And subsequently, we have been trying to spread ourselves out as much as possible. And Dan, I know that you were here earlier on in the week, and you've actually been speaking to someone of a totally different subject. It's Professor David Crystal. And what was he talking about? Professor David Crystal is a particular hero of mine. He's an internationally well-known linguistic professor and a professor of languages. And his talk was called Gift of the Gab. And my goodness, has that man got the gift of the gab? It was all about eloquence, how to speak in, in public particularly. And I... I grabbed him, I came across him in the book signing after I'd been to his talk and indeed bought his book and had it signed by him. And I said to him, I started by saying to him, or commenting rather, that we were surrounded in, in this particular forum by, well, a lot of white middle-class Jews who it, for the most part are reasonably articulate. And did he tailor his lectures to the audience that he was about to speak to and this is what he said oh yes you always have to do that know your audience is one of the most fundamental things in the book gift of the gab it's one of the earliest chapters know your audience now that means everything it does it's nothing to do with a particular race or social background or color or anything like this it's a matter of level matter of whether you know age is a factor here talking to an older audience versus a younger audience in a context like Jewish Book Week I know very well that the majority of people in the audience are going to be pretty articulate pretty fluent they'll have their own sense of humor and so on now the crucial thing for a lecturer is never try to replicate that the worst thing you can do is try to be the audience no no they already know who they are so tell them things that they don't know. Tell them about other kinds of eloquence and let them make the application to themselves. You know, the audiences are intelligent and they will be able to do this. So when I talk about eloquence, I talk about general principles that apply to everybody, whatever their background, whatever their age, and illustrate from areas that are usually not part of the audience's direct experience, but which they'll be able to apply to their own situation. Same thing would happen if I were lecturing, say, to a group of Japanese. I would never use a Japanese example. I would use examples from other parts of the world and let them apply it to Japanese. Conversely, if I were, say, lecturing in here, in Britain, I might use a Japanese example. And so one always keeps the audience in mind, but in a way where you don't teach them to suck eggs. You know, the old phrase, you don't teach your grandmother to suck eggs. You don't carry coals to Newcastle. All those metaphors come to mind. Tell them something different, but point out that there are general principles that apply to them as well as to everybody else. And it, does that give the audience time if they've got perhaps an unfamiliar allegory or metaphor to absorb it before you go on to the rest of the talk or have you got that in mind to literally give them time to absorb it you must give the audience time one of the basic principles that i talk about in the book and talked about in the lecture here today is to draw attention to people's attention span which is very short really it's only about five minutes for most people before they, they lose slight track of what you're saying and wondering and they, oh you suddenly realize yes now I realize and they come back to it and so you bear that in mind and I always always advise speakers to if they're doing a long talk to break their talk up into chunks of perhaps five minutes maybe a little more sometimes depending upon the subject but not to go on for too long then give them a break give them a breathing space and that's the point at which you'll sense whether something that you've said has not gone down particularly well. You'll see people looking at each other, uh, nudging each other and saying, what, did, what was that he said again? And things like that. And in question and answer time, always make sure that a lecture, a talk of that kind is a conversation because it's in the Q&A that you'll really get a sense of whether what you've said has been understood by the people who are there. One thinks of the verbosity of 
particularly with politicians, of course, and particularly in the 19th century, how did they get away either with being very eloquent, like Disraeli or Gladstone perhaps, or not? How did they keep their audience from going to sleep in these two-hour talks, lectures, political speeches? Yes, well, of course, we don't know. Maybe people did go to sleep in, in those days. One, one can't be sure. But there was an expectation of long speech-making, a real expectation, which the best politicians would be aware of and would depart from. The most famous example is Lincoln's speech at Gettysburg, which is just a couple of minutes long. It contrasts with the previous speaker, who went on and on and on and on. Now, which speech do we remember? The two-minute one, not the long one. And so there was a general expectation in those days, and it lasted really until, well, Churchill's time and maybe a little afterwards, that a long speech was what's to be expected. Therefore, you set your attention span in advance. You knew that it was going to be long. You're prepared for it. You know that your attention is going to waver a little bit here and there, but nonetheless, you are expecting to sit there for a long period of time. And this is what has changed. Attention spans for that sort of thing have become shorter over the years for all sorts of you know, obvious reasons to do with interaction and the internet and things of that kind. So people no longer expect very long speeches from politicians or, in that matter, for everybody else. And so they set their attention span at a kind of lower level. And you will know if you go on for too long because the audience will start to get restless and will start to move and some people might even leave and at that particular point you know it's time to shut up. What a fascinating man he sounds. He, he, everything he says is absolutely right, isn't it? Absolutely. And you only heard a tiny little bit in the interview. Or, I mean, his talk was an hour, well, 40 minutes long plus Q&A. But he handled his audience with masterly touch. Absolutely masterly. He had us eating out of his hands. He really did. It's a, it's a sort of, there's a sort of magic about it, isn't there? You can't help listening to him. That's right. And he, he lets you into all the, talk, the sort of tricks of the trade. He says, at this point, which was five minutes into the talk, I'm going to drink a glass of water. I don't actually need a glass of water, but I'm going to stop and drink a glass of water because that will give you, the audience, time to readjust your attention, which was beginning to wander. That's amazing. I mean, when you were listening to him, were you thinking... My goodness, this is one of the best speakers I've ever heard. Yes, but it's not the first time I've heard him. That's, ah. that's why I went to hear him, because he has got the gift of the gab. I think he's a Welshman at heart. Well, he is a Welshman. And, and they and the Irish, of course, have got the gift of the gab. Oh, they certainly have. And he's got a most amazing sense of humor. He talks so much sense. And now I believe we're going into the crowd with Kate and Phil, who are going to speak to some of the people who are here now. Kate. It's extremely loud in the hall, but I have the fortunate, I'm in the fortunate position of being able to talk to a couple of people. I've just managed to, to corner down here. Can you tell me what brought you to Jewish Book Week? What have you come to see? We've come to see this one, American Jews, Settlers and Skeptics. How did you hear about it? We always um, are informed about Jewish Book Week and we always come to a few of the events very rewarding. What do you enjoy most about Jewish Book Week? Usually they have very good speakers and they speak about the books that they're very interested in. We are readers. We like to read. We like to know what's going on in the world and especially what's going on in Israel and the Jewish world. How come you're at Jewish Book Week? What have you come to see? We've come to see uh, tonight, we've come to see Jonathan Friedland and Ian Black on Israel. We've come to see the, about the American settlers in Israel tonight, one after another. How we come every day this week. Every day this week. Well, that takes me nicely on to the next question. I was just about to ask you, is, have you been to Book Week before? And I'm guessing the answer to that is yes. It's like one big Jewish wedding. And <laughs> <laughs> um, what would you say so far have been the highlights for you? It's been a triumph. Everyone has been a triumph. No such thing as a bad event? No. And what brings you to Book Week? Why did you want to be here? I think there is so much about ideas much better than a literary festival. So there's been so much to discuss and talk about. So we've loved it. And what brings you to Jewish Book Week? We're here to see Julia Boyd uh, speak about her book, Travellers in Third Reich. We're actually her publishers. So are there many publishers here at Jewish Book Week? 
we haven't bumped into any yet. Do you go and check that all the book sales are, are going well? Absolutely, of course. You know, it's always nice to see events like this and, and what effect they might have on the book sales. It could be a positive one. Are you allowed to choose how the books are displayed or are you told? Told. We certainly had no, no hand in that. And have you managed to sort of see any of what you, your competitors are doing? Well, we had one of our other authors, Tim Marshall, yesterday. I mean, that was, you know, brilliantly organised with a nice book signing at the end and so on. So we have confidence. Great. And do, do you, are you there for the Q&As at the end of each talk? Yes, yes we'll stick around for that tonight. And our colleague was at the one last night. So, yeah. Well, I tell you what, I've just seen some rather attractive looking brownies over on the counter where they're serving up the food. So I don't know. Started on those. <laughs> I think before we do, both Clive and Diana, before we do make a start on any of the food that's here, we'll come back to you and join you in just a moment. But I think we've got a flavour of what people think. Absolutely, it's really quiet. I think they're all going back in now for the next part. So I think we should too. Well, whilst you're making your way back to our studio, let me remind the listeners that you're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. We are coming to you from Jewish Book Week for 2018. And if you'd like to get in contact with us, then remember, you can by emailing studio at jewishviews.co.uk or on social media, you can find us at facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views, or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Oh, gosh, it's actually quite nice to get back into the quiet here. Oh, I was going to say, my ears are just it is a ringing. buzzing at the moment. It's, don't get me wrong, what an amazing atmosphere out there, but uh, seriously, it is noisy. Anyway. Anyway, we've got Viv Groskop with us, which is Hello. very exciting. Hello there. Здравствуйте, rather I should say, seeing as presumably we're going to be talking about Russian things. We are. I'd like to say Nastrovia, but oh no, but, go for it. But, but yes. I haven't got anything. To, <laughs> Most so people I can't. know Nastrovia. Mm. Cheers. But the in the know thing to say is actually Zazdarovia. You haven't got any yeah. vodka with you. <laughs> we could practice that. I one, normally do have a little flask of vodka with me, but not today, I'm sorry to what's, say. What's the difference with, between those so two? So Nazdarovia is what people traditionally say as cheers for a toast. It means to your health, but Zazdarovia is a more specific, heartfelt toast that means for your health. I know it doesn't right. sound like there's very much in, translation. in it, but it's just a more intimate way of giving a toast, if you well, say Zazdarovia. We are totally running away with ourselves here because we should explain that Viv Groskop is indeed the author of the Anna Karenina Fix. And I suppose one has to ask, what is the fix? Well, yes, that's a very good question. And this is something that's come out a lot since this book came out. The Anna Karenina Fix, Life Lessons from Russian Literature, is my vision of how you can fix your life by listening to the wisdom of the Russian classics. And it covers 11 different Russian classics, the main one of which is, of course, Anna Karenina, the great Tolstoy novel, which pretty much everybody has at least tried to read. And I try to suggest ways that this literature is actually enlightening and enriching rather than massively depressing and making you want to throw yourself under a train. Well, it is. I mean, it is absolutely fascinating. And I have read quite a, quite, I've read quite a bit of Tolstoy. I'm curious, if you want to get a fix and when you want to go life lessons, why not go to something like the Bible? I'm sorry to be boring. I mean, I'm well, the only, the only reason I would say is that probably because I wouldn't have very much information personally about the Bible, <laughs> whereas I have an intimate knowledge of Russian literature. But no, it's a great question. And I think there's been this great trend in biblio memoirs, which is, of course, one of the things we've been discussing at Jewish Book Week with the other author I'm appearing with, Laura Freeman. Her book's called The Reading Cure, and it's all about the literature that helped her recover her relationship with food. And she covers, you know, dozens and dozens of different classics from across the world and there's this whole trend in publishing now for looking at our lives as readers and the books that have really created us as readers and for me this really was Russian literature from the first time that I discovered it when I was about 14 and I read Anna Karenina and I really wanted to write a book that is a very intimate exploration of what creates us as readers. I'm ashamed to say this, but I have tried to read Anna Karenina. I thought you were going to say you tried to read my book. No, I'm coming to that. I've been, for years and years and years, from before you were born, I've been trying to read Anna Karenina, and I have never managed to get to the end of it. Can you please, will your book explain to me 
how I can get to the end of Anna Karenina. Well, not only will it, will it explain how you can get to the end, but it will also give you a two-page pricey if you can't be bothered to ever get to the end. So hopefully it would fulfill many roles for you. Oh, that's um, fantastic. Well, one of the things that I really take on board in, in this book is people's inability to get on with these books. And I have, because it covers Anna Karenina, War and Peace. Oh, uh, War and Peace as well. Right, there you go. Ah. Well, there's a special trick to reading War and Peace that can be, you can read it in five minutes. The trick is to go to the back of the book and look at the line by line pricey. It's a very clever way of getting through it if you never have. But this is, it's a common preconception, misconception about Russian literature is that it's difficult to read and hard to get on with. And what I try to take on in this book is just unpicking all of that a bit, relaxing about it, not putting it up on, on a pedestal and just trying to have a much easier relationship with it. Do you think that the average reader, in fact, will get on better with Russian literature when it's in the form of drama? In other oh, words, as a play. Oh, that's such a great question. I think in some ways, yes. And I cover two plays in this book. I Do cover you? Chekhov's Three Sisters and Turgenev's A Month in the Country, two of which very entertaining and comedic plays. But I think a lot of people's way in to the Russians is through Chekhov, and it can be seen as more accessible, partly because the comedy is more obvious than it is in a lot of the other writers. I actually think Tolstoy can be a very playful and funny writer in his own way. But yes, I think the plays are much more accessible for people. And so I've sort of used those as a bit of a sweetener, those two chapters, to try and convince people, yes, you can also read Solzhenitsyn, who's in there, Bulgakov. Not, I really want people not to be put off and to perhaps think of those really heavyweight writers in the same way that they think of as Chekhov. I've not written this, your book, you have, but I just a tip for that I've always found for understanding and getting into the Russians, and, and I run sort of shared reading groups, is reading aloud. To actually start off and read aloud, and somehow then the speeches, I mean, you know, the long speeches about cornfields or whatever the, the speeches happen to be, they seem much more relevant, and they can because they've got a voice behind them, even if it's one's own voice. Do you, do you suggest reading that is, aloud? That's such a great idea, and it didn't really occur to me when I was writing the book, but since. It came out and I've done a lot of festival events about it. I've met so many readers who have rediscovered these authors through audiobooks. I have a friend who's just been listening to the most recent audiobook of Anna Karenina that's just come out. I think, I think you can do it in about 12 hours. So if you've got a couple of long car journeys, that's one way through it. But yeah, I love that idea. For me, it was more I discovered these books because I desperately wanted to learn Russian. And that really happened because I was in denial of the fact that I... I'm Jewish a long way back. I am I am Jewish and I'm not Jewish. I wasn't raised as Jewish. I knew nothing about my heritage. And despite having a Yiddish name, which means fathead, Groyskop, and coming from uh, Poland, I knew none of this as a child. And I developed an idea in my head that I must be Russian. And I set off on this crazy, crazy quest to prove my Russianness. And that's how I came to all of these authors. Well, it sounds absolutely fascinating. And I personally, for one, have not read it, but I look forward to doing so. That's the Anna Karenina fix. And you've been hearing about it from Viv Groskop. Thank you so much Thank for you. speaking to us about I this down the Jewish Views. Uh, yes, well, quite. Anyway, <laughs> thank you very much indeed, all the same. And I don't know about you, but I think that sounds absolutely fascinating. And I, and you know what? I'm, I'm slightly ashamed as well, because you say, Clive, that you can't make it all the way through a Karen. And I don't even know if I've made an attempt, frankly, but I think I will now. It's worth it. Well, I do know that there's one book I'm going to read straight away, and that's the one we've just been hearing about. I think it's, she sounds fantastic, and her book sounds marvellous as well. Yes. And it's interesting how she really is finding lessons inside these books, which... You know, there are life lessons because these are real people in, in actually quite a poverty in time. You obviously get the rich people, but there are some really quite... I'm looking forward to seeing what lessons she manages to draw from, from all of these uh, people. Indeed, yes. She, she's, she's got enough to draw, goodness knows. Well, I think that we've learned some lessons from our special programme here at Jewish Book Week. But regrettably, I think time is well and truly up and against us. But I don't know about you, I've had tremendous fun. Has been a great I've enjoyed it immensely, yes. Well, just before we end this particular edition of The Jewish Views, it's nice to know that some things never change. And it is time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Andrew Shaw 
from Mizrahi, UK. Life is difficult at the moment for myself. Well, not really. I'm an Arsenal fan, so people tend to think it's difficult because my team is so absolutely appalling at the moment. And what's interesting is how Arsenal fans have changed their opinion in just a matter of a few weeks. Because you see, a few weeks ago, when the transfer window closed, for those who don't understand football, there's a time in the year where you can buy new players. It was all very exciting because Arsenal bought two wonderful players and their other player signed a massive contract. And everyone thought, great, look at this team on paper. They can do amazing stuff. The problem was, once that team on paper began to play, it hasn't really turned out that way. And I think that idea relates beautifully to a very strange idea we can learn in the Torah readings at the moment. Because the idea is, of course, if you believe, which I do, that the Torah is divine and every word of it is is godly. There should be meaning in every word. And then we come to this week's sedra, sedras of Yaakov Pekude, it's just repetitive. It basically repeats the words of Turum and Tetzaveh the building of the Mishkan and the vestments of the priests. Why would I have to repeat an entire Pasha pretty much to say the same things? And the answer is in essence arsenal. Well, it's not, but it is, because the first part of Trimatatsava was the idea, the concepts, the ideas that God told us how the Mishkan was going to be. And that's great to have an idea, and it's inspiring and it's uplifting, but it's nothing unless you actually actualize that idea and build the Mishkan, which is what this week's about. It's when the Jewish people took the ideas, the concepts, the vision of God, and through B'Tzalel built the Mishkan and built the home of God in the desert. The message simply is, it's great to have it on paper, but unless you can deliver, unless you can actually actualize your dreams, it's not worth anything that it's written on. What a cracking way to start the new look for the Jewish views. But I think that all that's left for us to do here is to say thank you very much indeed to all of the guests who have appeared on this program, to Sarah Fairburn telling us about the organisation of the event Jewish Book Week for 2018, to Sarah Hirschhorn and Dov Waxman talking about that rather curious subject about settlers in Israel, and also, of course, to Viv Groskop and also to all of our punters that we spoke to earlier on as well. Thank you very much to our producer, Sue Greenberg. And of course, don't forget that if you would like to listen to this episode again, or indeed any of the other episodes of The Jewish Views, you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Remember, you'll be able to hear all of the previous episodes as well as this one. So I think that from me, Phil Dave, from Clive Roslin, Diana Toman, and from Kate Fulton, we say thank you very much indeed for listening to The Jewish Views. Do join us again next time. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.